Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. All right, guys. So I recently attended the 2023 Hunt Fish Podcast Summit, which is an event that Derek York, who works for Texas Parks and Wildlife um, and has done so for some time in the fisheries department, uh, he started the event, uh, I guess, three years ago to sort of get different people in the outdoor industry together and talk about wildlife and hunting and fishing and conservation for four days at a ranch in North central Texas. And along the way, you know, we, we record podcasts, we do roundtables, and we do a lot of bass fishing and hog hunting and, uh, just really, uh, you know, have a good time and, and, uh, you know, just have meaningful discussions and create content for our podcasts and our our social media platforms and uh, just all around a great time. I look forward to it every year. I've been two years now and I will uh, certainly be attending as long as I'm invited into the future. Uh, So yeah, really, really cool event. Uh, I think I got, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, interviews out of it. Um, Some really interesting people. First up will be Turner Rowland. That'll be this podcast. Um, Turner is somebody that's been in the outdoor media world since he was a kid through his dad. His dad has had, uh, several TV shows. Um, we'll talk about that throughout the episode. And uh, so it's, it's been kind of an interesting ride for Turner traveling around and, uh, fishing and, and hunting at the very highest level in some of the coolest places in the world, you know, from flats fishing down in South Florida to chasing big game up in Montana. Um, he's, he's had some really neat experiences and uh, you'll see that Turner has a very deep connection to wildlife in the natural world. And uh, some of the stuff we talked about gets a little philosophical, which I enjoy and uh, hopefully you guys too. So uh, with that, I bring you Turner Roland. It takes a while to get over the self-consciousness of your own voice. I know, right? <laughs> it takes like three episodes and you're like, okay, that's yeah. just what I sound like. Yeah, I was really scared to hear my own voice after I went on my first podcast. And then I was like surprised that I don't sound that bad, Mm. you know? Yeah. And that's why I felt inspired to start my own podcast. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's cool, man. A lot of people don't want to hear their own voice, but I encourage people to because then you may gain a lot of confidence. It may go the other way, but it's worth a shot. So you went the other way for me at first. Did it? Yeah. Like I was you know, on my dad's show every yep. like two or three years. And, uh, I hated watching it when I was a kid. Right. Um, just cause I was like a little, you know, like, like in the awkward years, 14, 15, maybe a little chubbier. Right. And, uh, I just hated seeing it. Like, I don't know why, but, but then, um, you know, in high school, I just started gaining some confidence and, right. and, uh, now I'm like, whatever, man. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, let's go ahead and dive right into it. So I'm here with, uh, Turner Roland. And uh, we're here at the Huntfish Podcast Summit, and this is the third year, I guess. Mm-hmm. Have you been every year? Or is this? I've been every year. Been yeah. every year. That's awesome. Um, great idea by Derek York and others. Um, but yeah, man, uh, you, you know, you were just mentioning, you know, growing up, you know, with your dad in the in the hunting and fishing media world. You know, uh, let's let's start from the very beginning, um, where you grew up and how you got into the outdoors. 
Sure. Yeah. So I, I really grew up on a flat skiff. Um, you know, my dad was a, a fishing guide in Key West for 15 years, um, mostly for permit tarpon and bonefish. He, he came down there from Jackson Hole um, after guiding trout for about five years. So he was mostly fly fishing when he started out um, and then transitioned to more of the generalized spin fishing um, around the time that I was born. So I didn't grow up with a lot of like saltwater fly fishing in mind. It was mostly spin fishing. Um, but, you know, I caught my first fish at like six months old, <laughs> like right when I could walk. Yeah. He took me to uh, a little little dock um, and uh, we caught a snapper, you know, when I was just a little, little kid. And uh, before that, I mean, when he would go out scouting for tournaments or, or before clients, um, even sometimes, you know, with clients, if they were like family friends, he would just dress me up in, you know, long sleeve t-shirt and hooded, hooded shirt, uh, pants and one of those like big sombrero hats. And I, I would be, uh, in the, in the car seat with a little sunshade on the, on the, uh, cooler seat of a flat skiff, um, ever since, you know, I was born. So growing up that way was really cool, but what was interesting about it is everything that was so cool about the Florida Keys was normalized for me. So I kind of grew up with really spoiled when it comes to flats fishing, Mm -hmm. you know, because my dad would come back from a charter and, you know, when you're a dad, I think your kids catching fish is the most important thing for you if you're a passionate fisherman. Mm -hmm. And so he would get back from client trips and uh, he'd be like, you know, I'd be sitting on the dock uh, after school waiting for him to get back and be like, Turner, come on, the tarpon are still biting. You know, I got to drop this client off. Let's go right back out. And we lived right on the water, right on the canal. So I just hop on a boat and go out right to where they were fishing all day and uh, catch tarpon after school, you know, pretty frequently. (laughs) And so I grew up like that, you know, just, and I had like a warped understanding of what fishing was, um, not what fish were, but what true fishing was and how difficult it was. Um, and, and so I was just spoiled right off the bat, but I found out really quickly when I started to pursue, you know, like, like flats tournaments, um, and things like that, just how difficult it was. So kind of a funny, funny introduction to to fishing um and something that not a lot of people get to do oh, and, yeah. it, and it that's, worked out for the best um but for a lot could've... of people that's <laughs> like in the later parts of their fishing career like they yeah. get down and getting it into flats fishing um for people that may not be familiar do you want to explain what flats fishing is sure so flats fishing is um inshore fishing in salt water um you know shallower water where you're primarily sight casting to you know permit Tarpon, bonefish, redfish, um, most of those, those sporting fish. Um, and it's just shallow water, really, is all it is. Um, and, it's, and it's mostly exciting because you, you can see the fish before you cast to them. You can see your you know, crab or fly or whatever you're throwing hit the water, and then you see that fish eat it, and then it take off. And so the length of time that you're connected to the fish is far greater than, say, bottom fishing. And so it's, it's more of the, I think it's more exciting, but it depends on what you like. Yeah. You know, I can definitely see myself getting hooked to that. You know, I recently got into fly fishing and, you know, 
some people are just very visually oriented and being able to hunt something and, and like look for it with your own eyes and then you see it and catch it. It's like you're hunting the fish almost. You know? Very similar. And I think that's why I gravitated so much mm-hmm. towards hunting when we moved away from the Keys because the visual nature mm-hmm. of it was so exciting to me. I, I wanted to be able to, and, and you know, it's, it's tough growing up. I talk about how I was spoiled, you know, growing up. And then we go to Tennessee where there's no clear water. Um, and all I wanted to do was like sight fish for bass. And it turns out that that is very rare. You know, it only happens one time a year if you have clear water. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sight fish for them on beds. But really, I was trying to chase something that just didn't exist yeah. in Tennessee. And and that's when I kind of fell into hunting. And I was like, okay, this is like the sight fishing. Right deal where you have a a visual connection to the animal you see it come in depending on what you're you know hunting and then you take the shot and and you see it up close which is really there are many many parallels between hunting and flats fishing right you know in terms of being quiet in terms of sneaking up on the animal um and and then in terms of actually making the shot or the cast right where it needs to be presenting the bait or, you know, especially archery shooting, making the shot. It's like a spot and stock elk hunting. Yeah. yeah. You have cool. very, very similar. Tell, tell us about um, your dad and his relationship to the outdoors. Yeah. So my dad, um, I mean, he's definitely my hero. He's, yeah. He is uh, the person I look up to the most. He was kind of in and out of fishing when he was growing up. Um, my grandfather, his dad was one of those, you know, bobber and worm fishermen for, for bluegill and bass. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I'd love to do that to this day. I'll, I, I yeah. can fish with a cork and bobber all the time and be perfectly content. <laughs> yeah, but that was his bread and butter, it, yeah. right? And so they would go out to the local uh, bluegill ponds or bass ponds and, and throw bobbers under worms. And he became really connected to that for whatever reason. Um, moving water was an immediate attraction to him. And so when he graduated high school, he, um, he was somewhat lost and he went to Yellowstone national park to, um, for a housekeeping gig actually. So he would clean rooms. He would have a list of, you know, 15 rooms that he had to clean that day. And once that list was done, he was free for the rest of the day. And so he would go and explore the trout rivers and he caught his first trout on fly on the Yellowstone river he was in a lake lodge as a housekeeper. <clears throat> and from that moment, he fell in love with fishing. And so he was going to go up to Alaska to work at a salmon cannery and fish in his free time. And my grandfather um, thought that there were better things to do with your time, uh, <laughs> more career oriented, you know, because he was an insurance salesman. Salmon cannery, like they're canning salmon. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the boats bring them in, <laughs> okay, yeah. they process them and, and can them. Um, and my grandfather sent him a ad in the Orvis magazine for a guide school with Joe Bressler in Jackson, Wyoming. And, uh, he thought that was pretty cool. So we went out there, did the guide school, um, ended up guiding out there for about five years, six years. And, um, he brought my mom out there. They started dating in college and in Jackson, the winters are very cold. You know, it was negative 20 pretty frequently that year that they tried to spend the whole winter out there right after college my mom just couldn't do it she was like you know um i grew up in tennessee i'm a southern gal and uh 
I don't like the cold. I don't like it being negative 20. And I can understand that after living in Bozeman for so many years. Extreme seasonal depression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, I think something that a lot of people don't realize from the South is that the further North you go, the less, the less, um, daylight there is in the winter time. Okay. So, you know, up, up in Bozeman, there are parts of the winter where you go to work, it's dark, and then you come back and it's dark. And there's that's not nothing that's you no can do, good, man. That is yeah. no good. So he he didn't like that either. You know, he spent his time being a professional fly tire. He right. tied a hundred forty four dozen uh, Quigley cripples um, in that winter and made you know just enough change God, to boy. to uh, make rent and stuff. So he was looking for a place to fish full time. And he settled on the Florida Keys and eventually moved all of us down there and started a family That's um, okay. down there and, and ended up staying there for 15 years and eventually started a television show to be able to get out of guiding, essentially, um, and free up time to, to spend with, with family and move up to Tennessee where there's a lot better education. It's um, guiding. It gets to be like any other job. It's work. And people yeah, you know, get... You know, one issue I feel like I would have is um, when you commit all of your time to guiding, like you would probably get jaded on the thing you love the most. That was a real concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really sad to see, you know, there there are a lot of guides in Key West that don't guide anymore because they want to. They guide because they have to. Um, And it's it's a really sad situation sometimes. And this is a very broad generalization of (laughs) some guides, you know, they get skin cancer or whatever. Mm. They're behind on their bills. They can't get out of the sun to get treatment and they guide until the day they died or, or they, they injure themselves. They have to be on, on the boat because that's the only way they make money. And my dad was smart and he saw that, you know, about 12 years in and was like, okay, I need at least something that I can, if, if, one of these things happens, I can fall back upon and still provide for my family. And his initial answer to that was, uh, tournament fishing, which is kind of odd because it's like the most extreme version of fishing and it's not really a way out. So we started traveling around to these, um, red bone tournaments all around the Florida, uh, Louisiana up to Texas and, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, and, um, made some decent money doing that you know he was uh very heavily sponsored um he won a couple of them um but it, it was very competitive um there were a lot of time spent away from family and the last straw for him was that um hurricane charlie hit the keys kind of unexpectedly while he was away um i think he was in venice louisiana and he was like dude i can't do this anymore i can't be away from my family when a damn hurricane hits like i'm not i'm I'm done i'm not gonna do this anymore and so him and his partner rich um his fishing partner were like okay well you know what are we gonna do if if we can't do these i mean we're the most sponsored people on the on the bass tour because both of them were were luckily very business oriented they thought about sponsors and typically a different way than than just free gear and a free mm-hmm. boat you know they wanted income right and so they they settled on starting a TV show. Um, my dad won the great outdoor games in 2002, um, in fly casting and, and fly fishing. And after that, he was on a ton of TV shows. Um, you know, like Shaw Grisby show and, and a bunch of, a bunch of shows. Cause it was an interesting story. Like a, like a guy from Jackson 
um, and Key or a guy from Key West uh, goes up to Lake Placid, New York, and wins a trout fishing tournament. Like that's kind of odd, right? And so it was an interesting story. He was on like a hundred shows or something in the in the three years following that. He's like, so how hard could it be? You know, I've done this, and uh, turns out producing a show is is much more difficult than just being on a show. For sure, you know, yeah. as I can attest to on the just on a podcast. I mean, producing a podcast is much much more difficult than just being on one. Yeah, for sure. Right, <laughs> and uh, but he figured it out, and now they're on their sixteenth or seventeenth season of saltwater experience what is that on um where where can people watch that people can watch that on the discovery channel and waypoint tv wow i didn't, I didn't realize it i knew it was on it would have been on waypoint but that's that's really cool that it's on discovery mm-hmm. uh, i don't watch network television anymore so like i wouldn't have known less and less people are every year that's why you gotta have way, <laughs> stuff like waypoint you know we'll, yeah. we'll talk about waypoint here in a little bit but um yeah so that's a really cool story about your dad that, that leads into you know your life in the outdoors, mm-hmm. which, you know, you were very spoiled with the flats fishing. You know, most kids, when they get into fishing, like for me, it was going out to my pond and catching a little bass. Or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, those experiences are valuable no matter where you're at, but um, it's really interesting. You got to, your start was in an area doing something that people do later in life generally uh, some people yeah. dream about it and never yeah. get to never do even, it yeah. so i was um i mean beyond blessed to be able right. to do that so from there you, you go to tennessee mm-hmm. and uh which is a beautiful place but i guess your fishing opportunities dwindled a little bit yeah i mean from going after school and catching 100 pound tarpon i was like <laughs> <laughs> what am i gonna do with this little bluegill or bass like it just wasn't it didn't i mean it was fun obviously mm-hmm. i liked it but it wasn't uh, something that, you know, when you got it to the boat, made you just want to scream in excitement like a tarpon or a permit mm-hmm. or bonefish or something like that. So I kind of was just like cruising around, you know, just like I don't know what to do. How old were you when you got to Tennessee? Uh, like maybe like 11 or 12. Gotcha. Um, and we moved to a like suburb, okay. right? And so uh, I went from having this canal in the backyard in a swimming pool um, where when I was bored, I would just put a mask on in the snorkel and go and explore, you know, and find different lobster traps and everything. And as long as I stayed like like one house up and one house down, I could pretty much go wherever I wanted it in the canal. And, and, you know, in the canal wall, there's lots of holes and stuff and you'd come across snappers and sharks and groupers and just really cool stuff and jellyfish and, and, um, just learning about about the ocean. So I went from the ocean, which is like one of the wildest places on earth, yeah. to a relatively mild climate that I knew nothing about. Right. In a suburb. At the, yeah, in a suburb. Access so, to the outdoors. Yeah. Know, great. Yeah, and I was used to just being able to go on a boat and explore <clears throat> unlimited amount of publicly accessed water. And in Tennessee, you know, what's interesting is that when I was growing up hunting public land was like a no-no. You, you, I was not allowed to go on public land because of all of the accidents that, that happened there. You know, it seemed like with turkey season, at least, uh, you'd hear about people getting shot like almost every weekend and sketchy people. And then we'd go up to the gun range in Tennessee, the public gun range, and it was just a total crapshoot. And people were accidentally shooting the ground. And I mean, it, it was something that we were like scared of, 
was the public land. And so we had very limited private opportunities and the opportunities that we did have were not that good, you know? And so, or more likely we just didn't know what we we're doing, you know? And so we'd see like three or four deer a year. And, uh, so at this point your dad hadn't even really got into hunting at all. You know, mainly, my dad mainly grew fishing. up, yeah, my dad grew up duck hunting. Okay. So, okay. But no one in my family was a big game hunter. I got you. And my grandfather was a big duck hunter. Um, he, he was really into it, but he probably knows about sure shot game calls. That was like the call, the call oh, yeah. brand. That was like the call company back in the seventies, sixties. I'm 70s. sure he does. He yeah. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he has some probably. Probably. Cause he was big into, you know, duck calling and everything. And he would travel around to Mississippi. And my dad grew up going to Mississippi to, okay. to duck hunt. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really weird because there for a while I kind of got out of the outdoors cause I just assumed that there was no activities to be had because my dad wasn't taking me after school to go fishing or anything anymore. Um, and all the while he's still doing the TV stuff. He's still doing the TV stuff. Yeah. My grandfather is a insurance agent. And so he, while he was doing the TV show, um, he also like tried out insurance for a while and didn't like it. Um, and, uh, he just, he was like, all right, well, you know, since I don't like a desk job, I got to make this work. Some of us are just built different. Yeah. Aren't meant for the standard yeah <laughs> well, a lot of people i think and a lot of people are stuck at a nine to five and that's like the question that my dad gets the most is nightmarish like, yeah to me, you know. well and and what's really nightmarish is the more time you spend in it the deeper of a hole if you want to call it you dig yourself into and it's harder and harder to get out and then you know you talk about getting out and it's risky, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And then you have to have a backup plan or whatever, which you, you shouldn't have a backup plan because if you have a backup plan, you're probably not going to make it. Okay. Um, yeah. And then you have to have you know an emergency fund and all this money saved up. And right. It's just I don't know. It's it's uh, there's a lot of comfort people find in the you know going to college, getting their degree, or or just going right out of high school into a, a good job at a refinery or in a, a nine to five or. Um, and you know, that works for a lot of people, mm -hmm. but some people that just simply doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I think it just depends on, yeah. on what drives you. Right. You know, and I think different people are driven by different things and there's certainly nothing wrong with a nine to five. It's an honorable, it keeps, keeps thing uh, to do. society rolling. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. You provide, we have to family. have that stuff. Yeah. Um, but you know, luckily for some of us, we're able to scratch out of living in this world doing <laughs> A lot cooler stuff with our, with our time. Yeah. More fulfilling stuff, rather. Yeah. Um, where were we going? What, what was Talking the question about your, um, your, your dad, um, he's still in the fishing, or he's still in the media world. Y'all are in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then what happened after that? Yeah, so uh, for whatever reason, um, I was like too young, or my grandfather, not that he didn't want to take me, but the opportunities just never rose to go duck hunting with him and so we got my first hunt was a uh, dove hunt in Tennessee um, and we killed two doves and I was like over the moon about it I couldn't believe how cool it was <laughs> to shoot something with a gun in the air and then go and pick it up and and actually look at it and observe it and learn about the bird I thought that was really cool um, and come to find out that you know the thing that I thought was the coolest was 
like very mediocre when it comes to hunting. So even in like mediocre situations, I was fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And and then um, my dad got into turkey hunting with some buddies, and he was uh, very interested in the visual element and the um, the auditory element of the the turkeys. He went for a couple years and I was just like still too young. You know, I was like 11 or 12 or something. He was like, I can't sit still, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, so Turkey hunting is very important to stay still, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so finally, we got like a lease um, on our own and, and he was able to take me turkey hunting. And on the first, you know, we, we spent spring break hunting. And, and uh, it was funny because he was like, all right, we can either go down to the Keys and we can fish for tarpon and it's probably going to be okay. You know, the migration hasn't kicked in or whatever. Cause he still has a bunch of friends down there that, that can tell him how the migration's doing. So it's probably going to be okay. Or we can uh, hunt the youth weekend of Turkey at our new lease. And I was like, let's hunt the mm-hmm. youth weekend. I've already done the tarpon thing a time or two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, this is new. Yeah. It's exciting. I've always you know, my dad would come back. He, he was like, oh, Turner, you won't believe it. We almost killed this bird. He was right over this ridge. We just couldn't get him to come over. And I saw his fan strutting back and forth. And he was gobbling, gobbling, gobbling. Like, man, that sounds pretty cool. I want to get into that. So we hunted Youth Weekend. Um, and just out of happenstance and pure luck, looking back on it, we ended up killing a big gobbler. Um, and then later in the season, we ended up killing two jakes. And that was like the spark that really set me down the path of hunting. Just you know? hunting in general, not just turkeys. Not just turkeys. Uh, you know, a couple of years later, uh, my grandfather took me on my first whitetail hunt. I was really lucky enough to kill a, a whitetail, um, you know, four point, like two by two. Um, and that was one of the coolest things that I've ever done. I mean, it was when when that deer walked out, I mean, we were, we were both like shaken and excited and it was just so new, you know? I mean, it was like a, it was like a new relationship where everything is just like so new and exciting. Do you still chase that new feeling? Yeah, for sure. I do too. And and that's why I still feel like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a very childlike excitement when it comes to the outdoors. And, um, that's one of my favorite things ever, man, because chasing and as you evolve as an outdoorsman and you, and you get better and better at things, you have to, or at least I have to, pursue more difficult and more difficult things because the harder they are to accomplish, the less you get to do them. Like elk hunting, you know, you only, if you're really good, you'll kill an elk once a year Mm -hmm. if you're really, really good. And so there's, whenever you kill an elk, there's always that, like, oh my God, I can't believe this just happened. Like, it, it happened so fast this was going on and this was going on. We made the shot and, and here he is. And there's a, this, that build up to this yeah. one moment to this one bull elk. Whereas like duck hunting, I duck hunt like every weekend during duck season. It's just, you know, it's kind of routine. I'm going out there, boom, 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 shoot the ducks. And you have mm-hmm. cool experiences. I love duck hunting, but I can't imagine it's anything like killing an elk. Yeah. yeah elk hunting is like big game hunting for me is more of a spiritual experience Mm -hmm. than waterfowl. And that's not to say that waterfowl, um, isn't spiritual in its own right. But, um, once you kill so many ducks, it, you become accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And there are certainly moments where you look out when the sun is rising and you're setting decoys and there are ducks flying over and you're like, wow, this is amazing. But it doesn't, Yeah. like every, anytime I kill an elk, it brings me to tears. Like it's that spiritual for me because it's that elusive for me and I'm mm-hmm. not that good at it. And the places you're in, mm-hmm. the mountains are uh, like, I see pictures of people hunting elk and like, you just look in the background and they're just immersed in the wilderness. Yeah. You're back there. And you realize very quickly that you are not the top predator. You know, when you're waterfowl at hunting, there's no sense besides other people of danger. Ar- arguably more dangerous than any natural predator out there. Yes, yes, that's very true. <laughs> but that yeah, doesn't tickle our, our primal instinct for fearing big predators, though. Yeah, yeah like, like this past... Um, so this year we did two elk hunts, two week-long elk hunts. We did one private land hunt and one public land hunt. And on the public land hunt, we were in grizzly country. On the private land, we weren't. Um, and on the public land hunt, we ran into a sow and two cubs one morning. And then the following afternoon, we ran into a big boar. And so you definitely get the sense of not only are we out here, you know, five miles from the truck or whatever you may be, three miles from the truck, but we're also in somewhat of a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the more and more that I hunt, the more that fear or uncertainty is involved, the more enticing it is to me. Right. And those hunts, you know, there's, um, obviously we were talking last night, all the controversy around managing like wolves and other predators, mm-hmm. but you know, for the people that are chasing wild experiences, there's a lot of, elk hunters and hunters in general that, that that they wouldn't want to see you know the rocky mountains without some pre- you know some of the natural predators present mm-hmm. that that makes it that much more exciting right yes it does yeah. it's a it's a double-edged sword though because i don't know i've never really thought about this too much about what the landscape would look like without grizzly bears um because to me I would probably rather not have them there because they're. Uh, I'm scared of them. You're scared. Yeah. I'm scared of a them. natural. Yeah. You might take them for granted though. No. Maybe and <laughs> and there's a certain like there's there's a certain um, appreciation that you have for them when you run into one like really close and you come out just fine, and I've also altered my thought process about grizzly bears um because we ran into this sow and two cubs at about 30 yards uphill and um the interesting part about it was that we were in a meadow luckily because typically i feel like most grizzly attacks happen when the bear feels like they're cornered Mm -hmm. and they don't have any other option but to attack and that was a new understanding that i came away with this hunt from so we so we were walking through you know this big meadow and, and where we were hunting was relatively open but the trees that were there were very thick. And 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 so you, you couldn't really walk through them. Like, you get lost very easily just trying to go from meadow to meadow and cutting through trees instead of going around them. And so this bear was coming down the slope to us, and we were walking, you know, straight ahead. And we come out from this meadow in this, like, little funnel of the trees, and we hear, like, a rustling, and we see some brown uphill of us about 30 yards maybe maybe a little closer but probably around 30 Mm -hmm. yards and we see this mom grizzly running uphill away from us and these two little cubs bouncing around like you know 
where are we going? <laughs> like, what's up, mom? Cute like, as can be, I'm sure. Uh, terrifying as can be, you know, <laughs> because they're with mom. Yeah, true that. yeah and and they are. They, yeah, they're cute when they're yeah. when they're alone. And um, this mom, you know, she she runs away initially because she's startled to see us. She turns on a dime to look back at us. She stands up, looks us in the eyes, and then looks around at her options. You know, to her left, to her right. And then behind her and says, all right, kids, come on. Hmm. And she pops down on back all fours and they run up the hill. Had to be a special moment. I fear, you know, yeah, definitely fearful, but like those moments like that, that, that's got to be a profound experience. Well, what was really interesting about it was that when the situation was happening, there was no fear. Your the, adrenaline kicks in, I guess, and you just in the moment. Not in that no? situation. No. no. I've felt- actually never had a situation where i'm like shaking or a bear comes and that's probably just because i haven't been in a really bad situation with a bear but every time i mean i was clear-headed i was just looking at i was like let's see what happens Mm -hmm. you know let's see what happens when this when this comes and and let's observe what's going on and the interesting thing about her looking left at us right and then back and deciding to head out so I was like, oh, these bears aren't out to get us. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not looking for us. They want to stay away from us. And if they can get away from us, they're going to get away from us. Yeah. And they're generally only going to attack if they feel like there's no other option but to attack in mm-hmm. order to protect their cubs. And in that moment, there was like a different sort of understanding and connection with the bears that I had previously. And it was kind of one of those epiphany moments where I was like, oh, <laughs> they're not. It's not like they're monsters. They're not evil monsters. Yeah. yeah, they're just bears. And when you enter into the wilderness area, you sign a contract with them saying, hey, look, you're here. I'm here. If something happens, that's on me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not on you. You're just trying to live your life, you know. Just imagine the, the, you know, the native people that have been living with these animals for for millennia mm. with no like nothing but archery and oh, bows yeah. and spears and, well I love reading about yeah, those situations crazy to think about it. I could just to me uh, I've never been I guess I've never been camping in grizzly country but I, I get the feeling that it's it's gonna wig me out a little <clears> bit you know I feel like I'm gonna not sleep as well with the thought of a grizzly just yeah. tearing down my tent but I guess it's not a super common occurrence it happens. It does happen. For yeah, sure. It does happen. But generally, someone's doing something wrong. Yeah. They have food in their tent. They okay. have even toothpaste in their tent. You have toothpaste, to... Toothpaste, huh? Yeah. They yeah. smell the minty... Uh, yeah, they smell the minty fresh, and they, they want some of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Just throw them... The, the odd thing um, is that, you know, if you store food in your tent, you're going to be just fine 95% of the time. And it's the other 5% that you're going to have some problems. So you can get away for it with it for a long time because they don't want to interact with humans. I mean, generally mm-hmm. they're looking for food in that situation. And so there have definitely been occurrences, especially in the national parks with um, like tourists backpacking and they're just not educated. And the national parks have done a really fantastic job of educating the public. Like now, um, different than, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, maybe not five years ago, but different than the past, you have to watch a grizzly bear awareness video in order to get a backcountry permit oh, wow. in the national parks. So there's a lot more education going on. But 
I mean, honestly, man, the thought of grizzlies is much more intimidating than actually running into them. Right. Yeah. Once you're in the moment. Yeah. Just a wild animal that really doesn't want anything to do with me. I think they're generally misunderstood. Yeah. By the, and I don't think they're generally misunderstood by the overall public. I think what's interesting is that the non-hunting public has a much more accurate conception of what grizzly bears actually are. That's usually not the case. Well, it's usually not the case, but hunters who are in that area, they're like, it's like the boogeyman. Like, they're out to get me. Yeah, a lot of it's generational fear reading passed down. You think so? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. It's just always been a thing, you know, since Europeans arrived to kill every predator and remove, tame Mm -hmm. the land and cleanse it of its predators. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the vibe you get, you know, over the past 200 years in North America. Yeah. I feel like that must have something to do with it. Probably. Probably. I think it's, you know, also just based out of fear. Like, I think the general public doesn't have a fear of grizzly bears. And so they have a a different thought process about what they are and what they're trying to do. Big cuddly bear, which is also wrong. Well, (laughs) it's not accurate. You know, I I think that 99% of people misunderstand grizzly bears. But I would say that the general public's understanding of them is more accurate than the general hunter's understanding of them. But it's still not, it's still not really close. But they think about them and understand them in a in a more accurate way. Where that lends problems is on the management of bears. Well, and then the belief, the belief systems around bears, it's it's like a lot of issues. There's like you know, these people that are the hunters. In your case, you know they they think of bears as evil monsters, or mm-hmm. the non-hunting public thinks of them as cute, cuddly critters. Where Both the truth are is actually yeah. the truth is somewhere in the middle. They're just like any other species, um, they don't want to waste their energy on something they can't eat, mm-hmm. and, that, and that isn't a threat to them. So, like, well, why would they just attack? Or, or you know, in the case of you encountering the cubs, it's actually potentially a dangerous situation where mm-hmm. mothers protecting babies, and that, I guess that happens. A lot of some attacks that occur, um, it's a mother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, many many times um, there have been rare cases like where the area that we were hunting um like three years ago there was a problematic boar that would actually stalk hunters um and no one ever got attacked by them but it had to be i can't remember if they put it down or they relocated it but what's funny is when i was guiding um elk hunts in the lee metcalf wilderness only about three miles away were where they would dump the problematic bears from Yellowstone, the Tetons, um, and the surrounding national forest. And so when we were guiding back there, we had like the baddest of the bad. <laughs> and that was where my like fear of them came in okay. because we had several, never happened to me, but we had several guides um, either bluff charged or charged. And two of them happened within you know a quarter mile of our camp. I don't. I don't know if I would be okay with that. That, that might, you know, skew my view of bears. Getting yeah, and I think that's where that came from. Yeah. Where I was like, they're out to get us. You know, these are that. That's the we're out to get the elk, and the bears are out to get us. And, and the bear, and the elk. Yeah, and the they're elk. Both. Yeah, and the bear is the enemy that's preventing us from getting to the elk. Right. But that's not not yeah. necessarily accurate. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're like villainized in the minds of you know, people that interact with them in that way. For sure. The enemy. So we, we've skipped forward a little bit, you know, Tennessee, and then like, you end up in Montana mm-hmm. eventually. And, you know, you're a guide. You were, you were a guide at one point, a hunting mm-hmm. and fishing guide, right? Just hunting. Oh, just hunting. Just elk okay. hunting, yeah. Wilderness elk hunting. What brought you to Montana initially? A- um, good question. Um, so, you know, I grew up hearing stories of uh, my dad in Jackson and, and Yellowstone. Um, that always kind of somewhat appealed to me, but it never really appealed to me until I was kind of forced into a corner. That was I, the, the trout fishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was a big wrestler in, in high school. I was never like outstanding at it. Um, but you know, I, I went to, you know, one national level tournament. I was like an all state wrestler. And so I wanted to, um, I was really attracted to the military and I wanted to wrestle for the Naval Academy. And, uh, when I was going through that process, interestingly enough, like the process to get into the Naval Academy generally starts around like late semester, sophomore year or early semester, junior year pretty damn early compared to other um colleges and so i was going through that process and i was like really excited about it and i was doing all this like jrotc stuff so i could get into the academy um and uh i was diagnosed with this eye disease that basically disqualifies me and the only prospects that i had for college like i was i went to like university of alabama tour i went to university of tennessee tour um and like college of charleston but none of those really fit I didn't like any of them and so the only real prospects for colleges that I had were military academies and that was off the table too so I was kind of like you know at the last minute I was like damn what am I gonna do and so I thought about just not going to college and I actually thought about like going up to Alaska or something and just doing something crazy because I felt like I needed to um after like get denied from the Naval Academy and so I uh had a buddy that was going out to Montana State, and, um, you know, we, like, fished together all through high school, and he's like, dude, you got to check this out. You know, this is really, really cool, and it's easy to get into. So I was like, great. <laughs> that's that's good news for me. And uh, so I went out and toured, um, and it was an incredible experience. We went out in March, so we did a little bit of skiing, and then we went to Yellowstone National Park, and we actually saw a giant, probably 400-pound boar um, on a bison carcass and, and, uh, there was a guy filming, uh, for the BBC, um, there. And it's actually really cool because there's a major Yellowstone documentary with the BBC. And, um, that shot was featured like many times in that documentary. And we were like right there watching him. He had a red cam and a monitor, you know, that would flip out. And, and he let us like look through the monitor and he had like a really, really cool powerful lens right yeah um and then he even had like a a thermal imaging camera um or or system you know not like not a camera but something you could look through Mm -hmm. in order to see heat signatures from animals so he would drive around pull off on a pull off scan the hillside with this thermal imaging and then be like oh there's a bear about to come out of those trees like i'm gonna set up the camera you know and that's what he did in this situation we just happened to come across him we're the, like the only people in the park and uh that really excited me so i was like okay i'm gonna go here um and then that summer i uh went to be a housekeeper in yellowstone national park um following in your dad's footsteps yeah because <laughs> i was like man this would be awesome um i have never really done a whole lot of trout fishing we went out 
like as a family out west once um so he could show us that did a little bit of trout fishing and, and the moving water also attracted me like just streams and everything oh, like i'm the same way yeah. growing up in you know basically southeast texas louisiana south you know the gulf coast there's not a lot of moving water mm. and not a lot of clear water so mm-hmm. like that when i see it it's it's like wow it'd be amazing to catch a fish here <laughs> yeah it's just yeah. like i can just sit at a stream and watch the stream go by all day and not yeah. throw a not throw a cast there's just like a i think it represents life because i think a lot of times i have trouble with like time you know like moments going by and uh really cool things that i did in the past that you know will never be the same again and i think i have a hard time dealing with that and so Dude, watching I, the stream it's the same thing really yeah. watching the stream go by like kind of represents that like that that bug floating down like i'll never see that bug again and it but goes down the stream okay, and there's it's more okay to come. there's more to come yeah that's the point of it right yeah yeah and eventually i mean eventually you know um eventually it ends right. you know it goes into the ocean or or whatever and i think i have a hard time um dealing with just like that fact to life and the stream is a more comforting representation of it that's something uh i've experienced very recently really of, um I'm just so nostalgic. I want to like yeah. re- recreate memories, but the fact is you got to go make more memories. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you like, it's okay to appreciate your, like memories are great, but you can't dwell on them too much because then you won't create more. So yeah. That's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I think I, I spend um, more time than I would like just Maybe not dwelling is the right word, but just thinking and analyzing the past mm-hmm. um, and the future instead of living in the present. In the present. Yeah. Being, when you, there are moments when I truly am present and uh, it, it just makes everything so much easier. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, yeah, the past and the, the future, they're pretty much like not relevant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and life if you is dealt out in, in moments, you know, each moment. Yeah. Huh getting philosophical here <laughs> the stream analogy is really cool i've never never would have thought of that that's, that's i like, think that's just why i was attracted to it because i just have a really for whatever reason i just have a really hard time dealing with the passage of time mm-hmm. and a stream is just like very comforting you know it's yeah. just like and you know i mean i don't know what you want to call it if you want to if you're religious and you want to call it god or something else you know um i think it's just very comforting mm-hmm. to just watch a stream and and realize that you know just like your life you're gonna float down this stream and and you're gonna pass these rocks and, and moments in your life that you're never gonna pass again and that's okay yeah you know and then you you end at the ocean yeah and that's great you end at the ocean and then you know what's you know i also spend a lot of time as a hunter um and angler like contemplating death and me too it's um try to avoid it but yeah, you, if you can find comfort. Yeah, you can find comfort. I avoid thinking about it, mm. but if you, if you can find comfort and and being okay with thinking about it, that's the goal, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think coming to terms with it um, is is interesting because you know, as hunters, like unfortunately, you see some like horrible deaths all the and, time. It's, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's nature, right? It's nature, and we're really lucky as people to um, generally. I don't know. I mean, I've done a lot of like reading and thinking on death and there's definitely something to be said about the, um, 
the third or first world um like thought process on it on death yeah Prim- yeah primitive people or you know pr- primitive tribes death is so normal to them like they, they don't mm-hmm. fear it you know I've, I've been um there's a book it's uh don't sleep there are snakes you heard it Mm-mm. it's about a prim- primitive tribe in the amazon that, that are still living the pitaha people and like death to them is just part of life you know like mm. their sister might die and they're like oh she's dead move on yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's really yeah. interesting and i don't know i mean at in blood sport you know fishing and hunting depending on on how you do it with fishing um i mean it's 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 a part of it um mm-hmm. and it's definitely my least favorite part it's like the act it. of killing the animal yeah Same i don't here. Yeah. i don't like it i don't even watching ducks when people uh they take like the shot cam like zoomed in like video mm. of the when they're shooting the duck mm-hmm. that's whatever people enjoy it's fine but like for me personally i'm just like I never care to film the most uninteresting part of hunting, which is the animal dying. Mm-hmm. It often looks just doesn't look good. You know, the animal is dying. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, it's always been a weird thing for me. Well, it's a really interesting, cause when you talk about archery, like I, it's a tough thing to like reconcile with because there's something beautiful about the act of killing an animal with a bow and arrow and the flight of that arrow to that animal's death. And there's something just mystical and it it's also like one of the most beautiful and most horrific hmm. things, right? It's much more brutal than, than taking a bullet, right? Generally. Um, it depends on where you hit it. How good of an art, you know, archery, archer you are. Yeah, I mean, if you hit it in the heart, like I, I shot a, um, I shot a bull elk, uh, at fifty-two yards, right through the lungs, and um, we watched it go down. You know, it, it, uh, I hit it once, and um, it ran about seven yards and stopped back and looked at us like, what the hell was that? And uh, shot it again, and at like sixty-two or something. Um, and my dad was like right there by my side and we were watching it and he was like, Oh my God, he just went down. I was like, are you kidding me? And so we go up on it and I mean, it, there, there's a blood trail. Like it looks like someone, you know, shook a can of spray paint, like 10 cans of spray paint and just knifed them. And then it went all over the grass, right. um, which is what you want to see, right. you know, but, um, but that was a really good death. And right. then quick death. But yeah, but then, suffering, right? yeah, then I killed a mule deer, um, this year with a bow and that was like a really brutal mm. death. Like I, um, I, I tried to shoot it in the heart and I, I was just like thinking about whitetail and I was thinking about how they jumped the string and it was a 60 yard shot. And so I was like, this deer has to jump a little bit. a little bit. Yeah. And so I aimed basically right at the bottom of the um of you know the torso thinking that it will jump a little bit and then it would nail it like top of the lungs or or bottom of the lungs top of the heart and it didn't move and so um i I basically like broke its front leg and didn't Mm. hit the vitals at all and so this thing was just like bedded down with its leg flopping around and i had to shoot it like two more times in order to finish it off and so i think it's just the nature of bow hunting Mm. but you know you can dwell on this 
But then you also compare it to this animal's typical death. Way better than a wolf or a disease. (laughs) Yes. Even that death that was like horribly horrific and I hated doing it. Um, You know, because I want to shoot an animal once and I want to um, watch it watch it die in 20 seconds so even that like five minute death that was just horrible to watch and you know you see the animal in agony it's better than a wolf or disease or a grizzly bear because the wolves i mean they eat it from the stomach up i mean the animal's still kicking around and they just surround the thing and take turns like pulling the intestines out it's really brutal um but i don't know i mean that's that's funny because we've been kind of all over the place on this death metaphor from the stream to actually killing an animal. Um, but it's, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I was attracted to moving water because I think it gave me a lot of comfort right. about life. And then with, because uh, I thought the military was like my calling. I thought that that was like the way that I was going to make a difference in the world. Um, and so the fact that that didn't work out and everything happens for a reason. Yeah. The stream gave me like immense comfort yeah. of just like, you know, like that's cool, man. And you're like in your, uh, what, early 20s at this point? I was 18. Oh, you're 18. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's like a weird time for everybody, really. And yeah, a lot of people end up on a bad trajectory from that point because they can't get their shit together. Or yeah, initially. Can't find purpose or... Um, but that's it's a difficult, yeah, for a lot of people. Like 18 to 25, it's just like a weird transition yeah. moment. It's going to like set you forward on... Well, it doesn't have to set you forward on any particular path, but like it is still a critical time. Um, but you know, talking about the um, you know shooting that mule deer, and you know one one main theme on my podcast is uh, I, th- I think most of my listeners are non hunters, so really? I'm always trying to help non hunters understand how we're okay with killing. Which you've already kind of explained this stuff, but and you know the conservation stuff aside, you know that's. Mm-hmm. I think most people in society now that aren't hunters can are understanding more and more of the North American model mm-hmm. and how successful it is. And, you know, our financial infrastructure is based around sustainable harvest. A lot of our science comes from harvest data and uh, all the rest, but more of the personal, like, I guess, um, like emotional part of it, you know, that's one thing that still a lot of, I guess, non-hunters or even anti-hunters can understand how we love something and then we kill it. Yeah. You have anything to say about that? Um, yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. I think that once you, I think that it's really necessary to develop a, a really in-depth um, understanding of an animal by killing it. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, I, you know, I have my fiance, the non-hunter, um, and we have talks like this all the time, mm. where my thing now is like, I want to kill a black bear with a bow really badly. And she's like, why would you want to do that? meats traditionally thought of as not that great um you know what are you going to do with it why do you want to kill it and and my yeah it's funny because you're like well i just love them so much i love these animals so much i love watching them i love um understanding them i i and i want to uh, deepen my understanding of them by harvesting one mm-hmm. and killing one and yeah you know. and eating yeah. it and i think that you know, call it spirits, call it, you know, the great beyond, whatever. But I think that there's really, uh, there's an intimate connection that you have with at least a species of an animal. When you observe the animal, you stalk the animal, you kill the animal, you break down the animal, you pack it out on your back, 
and then you eat the animal and then you hang the animal up to you know on your wall or on a rug or whatever to look back upon those memories and remind yourself how special that that is forever but you know on the you know (laughs) it's funny because you watch like some uh like sitcoms or something and they make fun of hunting and they're like you know uh malin loves new girl and um it's it's a pretty funny show and there was uh this one scene where there's like a duck decoy in this office and uh one of the main characters is like i want to kill you because i love you it's like <laughs> i think that's hunting you know and maybe maybe yeah. yeah but there's just like but there's a lot more to it than just simplified you know i don't even know if you could put it into words it's a much more because i'm also i also engage in a lot of non-consumptive activities you know what does as, that as mean? A, uh, like a birder uh, oh yeah bird watching like that's I cut my teeth on that for two months out of the year mm. and I'm a duck hunter too. So which is quite interesting. Um, when I meet other birders and they're like, Oh, you duck hunter. Like, what's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? But, uh, the difference is, you know, when I'm out birding, I just go out there and get my photos, I'm life listing, you know, I'm seeing all these cool species and it's great, but it's very passive and it's very fleeting. And like it, when you go out and hunt ducks, like just like you explained with the bear thing, you know, you, you, you learn about it, you, harvest it you break it down and then you eat it and then you have something to save after mount or uh, you know skin same thing you know like uh when i'm out in the marsh duck hunting that's a much deeper experience than just going birding and mm. just watching ducks um, it's a different type of experience i do when i'm out photographing ducks like bird watching ducks mm-hmm. and i get a really good photograph that's also very deep deep yeah. experience that i thoroughly enjoy but um yeah it's just it is it must be strange i think a lot of it is cultural um people that grow up in urban areas mm-hmm. and they're just not around people that hunt and the only thing they see about hunting is negative and i think we're all just mm-hmm. a bunch of dumb rednecks that don't give a shit about science or there's some of that there certainly is, and that's another you know um you know people like us have to be leaders in the hunting community and and mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, if they grow up in an environment where, like, they have questionable ethics mm-hmm. around harvesting wildlife, that needs to be corrected for mm-hmm. the future of our hunting rights. You know, there's, I, I like to think we have pretty, uh, we have a pretty good system, and I think we'll always have good hunting rights. But, uh, you know, like, Australia is losing their hunting rights all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they can't hunt ducks in certain places now and stuff. So, Well, I mean, even look at, like, not that far away, British Columbia. They lost grizzly bear hunting rights because of, uh, what's the major city in British Columbia? It's not Vancouver. I don't even is know. It? Anyways, they decided that they were going to outlaw grizzly bear yeah. hunting. It was and probably done out of emotion and animal rights. Yes. Because like, it wasn't like yeah. science-based mm-hmm. management. But I think that there's also um, something to be said about actually getting your hands on an animal. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said about pursuing a specific animal and then completing that pursuit and uh holding it it. holding it yeah yeah Yeah. when i was a little kid i would i would shoot various birds that probably shouldn't shoot Mm -hmm. but um was it like a red rider or something uh, yeah i was the same way uh, yeah (laughs) i don't want to incriminate myself here but i was five years old so yeah yeah um uh, part of my fascination with wildlife is and the reason i got in i was into snakes you know Mm. i've always been in like snakes are kind of like my main 
sense of identity is like reptiles and snakes. The reason I like them is because I can pick them up versus other animals. You can't pick them up. Mm. So like there's a deeper connection. But, you know, when I would shoot birds, <laughs> I could hold them and mm-hmm. look at them. And when I was reading about Teddy Roosevelt, um, he was really, really big into natural history and wildlife and stuff. He would go out and do that and he would mount them. He mm-hmm. would prepare scientific specimens and like, and, but he said he was, you know, in this biography about him, they were explaining how like his connection to the birds came from those years when he was a kid, like shooting and then like being able to hold it. Mm. Like he really felt connected. And I mean, as we get older, we, we are able to connect with wildlife, you know, in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be like that. You know, I can appreciate experiences where I'd never touch an animal, mm. you know, but yeah, you still want to hold on to some of that through sustainable harvest of wildlife. Absolutely. Yeah. It has to be sustainable, yeah. but there's also like, man, when you do something like I was fortunate enough to go on a bison hunt this year, in oh, West man, Yellowstone. That's, that's just like gotta be the coolest thing. It almost brought me to tears and I wasn't even the one that, shot it you know and so it was it was really funny because we actually killed two bison on that hunt um we we saw two the the bison hunt migration was very poor this year in west yellowstone and so uh these poor guys were just hunting every weekend you know and uh one of my buddies drew a tag and he was like hey man do you want to go and like try and help me out he's been kind of filtering buddies through because a lot of people want to go i was like yeah I'll absolutely go. He's like, just so you know, you know, we haven't seen a bison all season. I was like, I don't care. I just want to go. And uh, so we're riding around on snowmobiles and we finally saw two. And he calls another tag holder up that's, they, they've kind of been bouncing information off of each other. And he comes up and so they both end up shooting them totally legally. They both drew a tag. And we killed it on the banks of the Madison River. Oh, man. Where I have read about Indians doing that same thing for thousands and thousands of years like it, it's it's different when you like you know for a fact that you know in the last 500 years there have been multiple people doing the same thing with like primitive tools we did it with guns but primitive tools in the same area and you know just thinking like man how many bison have been cleaned in the same area and it felt like you were tapping into something in it was, I mean, it was even more spiritual than the elk that I killed. I think just because you, the bison were such an integral part of the Indians or Native Americans, you know, whole culture mm. and they spiritualized them. And I feel like that there is generations of thought and spirits in the bison and then going up. And actually holding them and being like, oh, wow, you know, this is different than I thought it would be. Mm. You know, the horns are kind of similar to what I thought, but the, the, the coat is totally different. The coat is so soft. I thought it'd be like very rugged and like matty, but it was like the softest really? coat that you would ever think. And then looking at their hooves, be like, oh, so that's why their tracks leave this way. And it's just like a whole different understanding of, of the animal. And it felt like you were tapping into generations of knowledge and it felt like you had a little piece you know because if you study the the indian tribes like their whole like religion was based around bison you know Mm. everything was based around bison because it 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 gave them life Mm -hmm. right and it felt like they put 
all of their energy into the species as a whole. And once you harvest them, it's like you got, it's like they gave you a little bit of that. And it was just like a very euphoric sounds situation. Like a very special experience. Yeah, because it was right outside of Yellowstone, so it was like a wild bison. You know, it wasn't like one in North Some Dakota. Some reintroduced or something. Yeah. And that's yeah. one thing I'm always uh, longing for is trying to experience uh, in North American ecosystems and places that uh, can like make me feel rather like it's pre-settlement. You know, it's pre-European mm-hmm. settlement. Like uh, I'm always looking for these. In Texas, that's very hard to find. Most of our landscape has been altered in some way. Mm. But there are like these tiny little fragments of like what the forest was like, you know, 300 years ago before Europeans arrived. And like the Devil's River. Devil's River is pretty wild. Yeah, there's um, like you're going out there and, you know, harvesting a bison out in that ecosystem. That's got to really feel like, you know, you went back hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. It was like time travel. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really cool, and yeah. you know, I wasn't. I wasn't fortunate enough to actually draw the tag, but it was like just enough for me to go just, yeah, and see it. It was. I mean, it was unreal, and I can't thank my buddy Taylor enough right. for letting me go. He both of those tag draws. So I've been putting in for that tag for like six years, and people put in for that tag for 25, 30 mm-hmm. years before they draw. Some right. people never ever draw. They die before they draw, or they draw and they're too old to go. Like it's kind of a weird situation mm-hmm. both of those were non-residents first time putting in both of them <laughs> i was like this is pretty special right this is pretty special the odds of this happening are one in a million probably and i was lucky enough to go do you ever do you ever think uh there'll be a time when um the, there's a bison movement right now right like people are want to return bison to much of the mm. yeah uh you know the west and just the areas that are under ranch or, or under cattle management, like returning some of that to bison management, right? Is, isn't that a big push? Um, it's like I listen to somewhat. a Renella podcast or something where they're talking about this. It's definitely a push. You have a lot of like conser- uh, conservation organizations and nonprofit pushing for that. I don't think that there will ever, I don't think it will ever be remotely the same. Yeah. Like not even, not even close because you have, I mean, what are you going to feed people off of? We have Cattle. To, we have to produce pigs. Beef. Yeah. Why can't and we... Uh, this is kind of ridiculous, I guess, but like in a, in, the, in a utopian world, it'd be nice if we could just replace all the cattle with bison. Just, <laughs> they taste better. Yeah, they taste better. They yeah. look cooler. They're part of the landscape. They're yeah. native. I guess they're harder to manage. can't do that at yeah. this point, but uh, they're, just, they're too big and badass, I guess. Um, let's get near the end zone here. Um, what you're up to now. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I live with um, my fiance and me live in mm-hmm. Bozeman, Montana. Um, we, uh, she is a uh, solar. She's smart as shit. Um, she's <laughs> way smarter than I am. She's a solar <laughs> estimator for uh, BP. Okay. Um, they they have like a little division called Light Source, so she does that remotely. I work remotely for uh, Waypoint TV as the head of their podcast network, uh, among other things. Um, and and that's been a really cool experience um you know you see cable television ratings um specifically in the outdoors as well but overall in cable continuing to decline steadily each year and cable uh streaming continuing to grow Mm -hmm. um more rapidly each year um and in july of maybe june or july of last year was the first time in history that streaming actually outperformed cable wow so we are y'all are getting in on it like at the right time yeah i think we're like six years old 
Okay. So maybe seven years old. So Waypoint is an outdoor streaming network. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And we're available um, on our website, you know, waypointtv.com. Um, there you can access all fishing and hunting shows, podcasts, um, and courses. Um, so we have like little educational courses. Okay. Um, and then we have our OTT app. So if you get like, a, a you know, Sam, the smart TV, you can download like Netflix and stuff. Okay. Um, the same way you can download Waypoint uh, just by searching on their app store. And then with, uh, and then we have our linear channels, which are basically like cable, but with Wi-Fi and it's streaming. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get the vast majority of our listens or, okay. or uh, views, okay, impressions, views. Um, and what's really cool is that on Samsung, LG, and Vizio smart TVs, if you just own that TV, you have access to Waypoint. So you can just go on the Samsung TV Plus, um, which is free if you have a Samsung TV, and uh, scroll to the Waypoint channel. It's like channel 1162 or really? something like that yeah and you can go to the website yeah, and find all that on the my channels. tv i have a smart tv i don't know what, which one it is yeah yeah and then we're also available on um like pluto is a big one um and we keep adding distribution channels like all the time um and we're on pretty much every major one and and then we're yeah. on like all the smaller ones that are right. all free like um oh gosh what are the smaller ones um like stir you know, um, uh, Plex, like like the the smaller ones, but mm-hmm. that we we just want to make sure that basically anyone with a TV and Wi-Fi can has get access. Access, gotcha. yeah, and it's and all free. How many like shows are on Waypoint? Ooh, um, I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, I mean, definitely over a hundred. Okay, so fishing and a lot of different shows. options if you're interested mm-hmm. in hunting and fishing. Yep, absolutely. Well, sounds like you're living the dream. <laughs> trying to living in Bozeman. Uh, yeah, I mean, in a coal industry. I just try to, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I try not to, it's easy to like focus on money and right. career success and everything. Um, but I think it's really also important to focus on, uh, what, not necessarily what you like doing, but what gives you fulfillment and purpose. Right. Um, and, and that's been like a major shift in my life in the last maybe three years is, is instead of focusing on what I want to do, um, I focus on, on what gives me fulfillment at the end of the day. What's going to be more sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Sustainable as well. Like, like short-term pleasure does not give us a whole lot of value. Yeah. Like, like scrolling through Instagram gives us the dopamine or whatever, but that doesn't, that's not sustainable happiness though. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Like I used to skip school all the time and fish the local streams and rivers. (laughs) And uh, that was great. And I'm glad I did it, you know. No regrets. But, but now fish. it's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to skip work to fish on the local streams um, so that I one day can have the freedom um, and responsibility to go to the, the bigger rivers and, and have the free time that I want to, you know, right. and learn how to build a business and learn how to manage a business and right. learn how, you know, all these really valuable skills. Um, so it's great. It's a really cross, it's, it's a great crossover between doing you know, building a business and then being focused in the outdoors. Cause I get to do cool stuff like this for work. Right. You know, we, we just sponsor this event and then I get to go down here and catch hang like out. 30 pounds of bass <laughs> yesterday and hang out with yeah. you guys. Cool people here. Yeah. So anything else you want to um, mention or, or any ending message here for you? Ending message. Um, I think, As an ending message, um, 
I would say to focus on at the end of the day, when you work really hard, what are you going to lay your head down on and be glad that you did and feel a sense of purpose on that? And that can be a nine to five. That can be a biologist job. That can be field work. That can be a welding job. That can be anything. But I think it's really, really important to lay your head down at the end of the day and say, I made a difference in my life or this person's life or this business. Um, and delay gratification for things that you ultimately want to do. Like my dream is to go on an archery doll sheep hunt, right. kill a doll sheep with a bow. Um, and I'm working, working towards that every day. Um, and then just to not really worry about the future and past because I spend way too much time thinking about it. Um, but to just think of your life as a stream, you know, things are going to come in and out of your life and, and that's okay. And you yeah. just got to go with the flow. It's a great ending message. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It yeah. was a pleasure.